This is Opinions Audio. We're here to talk about European politics and public opinion. My name is Isabel Hoffman and I'm with Catherine de Vries. So Catherine, our new Opinions study is called Great Expectations. Why is that and what did we find? So 2019 is a very exciting year for European politics. We've seen a European parliamentary election, which led to much more fragmentation. And we've seen the first female uh, commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who was confirmed as the president of the European Commission and who's now setting together her commission. And against this backdrop of, you know, a lot of stuff going on in European politics, so fragmentation, not just at the in Brussels, but in many member states, uh, Brexit, uh, climate change, a slowing economy, this kind of European Commission needs to find its voice. And what we decided to do with EU opinions this time around, so we just did a survey in June 2019, is to try to ask people, what do you actually expect of this European Commission and what do you want it to to do. And we actually asked two things. So we asked them specifically what they wanted the European Commission to focus on in the future. So what should the policy priorities be? But also, what do they really care about in their own lives? So what we found, just to kind of give you a sense of what the, the basic message is, so what we found is that contrary to kind of previous years, uh, where migration and economic kind of eurozone crisis, economic issues start to dominate, we see actually for the first time that climate change seems to be the key priority uh, for European citizens. 40% think it's the most important thing that the Commission should be focusing on. And also, of course, young people, which we would, we would expect seeing uh, Fridays for Future um, as strikes and demonstrations find it the most important. We do see variation between member states. So we see that richer member states in the north, they care more, the populations care more about climate change. Italy, Spain, for example, they're still jobs is the kind of key concern. So that's when it comes to policy priorities uh, of uh, the European Commission. Then when we turn to kind of what people's personal priorities are, what do they worry about in their own lives, rising living costs are our key concern. That's actually in all of the six countries that we also looked at more in depth. France, Germany, Italy, Poland, Spain and the Netherlands. We find that rising prices are our key concern, followed by poor health, but also things like social security and crime. And here also we see kind of some interesting things uh, between country context and, uh, and age groups. We find actually that loneliness seems to be a key concern for young people. So between the 16 and 25 year old, maybe, you know, social media, I don't know. And also what you really see is that uh, certain issues play out more in certain contexts. So especially the French and the Poles, for example, are really worried about rising, rising prices and, uh, and living costs. Then we also asked people next to kind of the policy priorities and personal concerns that they had. So what do you think about the EU and how do you think its future will be shaped? So when we ask people about their views about the European Union, we find a largely overall, the majority of people are positive about the EU. So they want more political and economic integration, about 54%. Uh, they would talk, you know, about 60%, about two-thirds, close to two-thirds would be positive when they talk to a friend about, uh, about the EU. And um, uh, people overall think that, uh, that uh, they're kind of optimistic about the future of European integration. But what is an interesting aspect of where perhaps we see some little cracks in that image is that people are quite concerned about possible future exits of the EU. So about a third thinks that it's likely that we're going to see more exits, but also that people think that there will be some different speeds of integration. So maybe a Europe of two speeds where some countries go ahead and others, you know, lag more behind. 
So the last thing we also looked at is not just the differences between countries and different between age groups, but differences between the kind of the average public and supporters for populist parties. So you can think of the alternative for Deutschland, so the alternative for Germany in Germany. You can think of uh, Podemos, a left-wing uh, populist party in, 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 in Spain, for example. And what we find is that actually people who support populist parties are more concerned about jobs than they are about the environment. So that's really a, a break from, uh, from the kind of average uh, public opinion within the EU. And also that they're much more skeptical about the EU. And we find especially that uh, supporters for right-wing populist parties are the, kind of the most skeptical of, uh, of the EU in the future. So this is the picture we're getting from public opinion. Well, Isabel, what does this mean for European politics? What I think is that there are high expectations for this new commission. It won't be easy for Ursula von der Leyen and her team to deliver. So let's dig deeper into why that is. When Ursula von der Leyen came to the European Parliament in Strasbourg to be elected the next president of the European Commission, it was very clear that she hardly had a majority in the House. The European Parliament was just newly elected and the composition of the House had significantly changed. The uh, EPP, so the European Conservatives and the Social Democrats, uh, had lost the majority and had now to share power with the Greens and the Liberals. And it was just a whole new kind of situation in which she entered the House and had to deliver her speech. When she finally gave that speech, she left a mark that was twofold. On the one hand, she had a very pronounced and ambitious agenda setting, emphasis on environment, on social rights, on the digital market, and on other policy fields that were very crucial. But on the other hand, it was not only policy-driven, it was also very personal. So she talked about her experience as growing up in Brussels, her father working with the commission, and then later on being a mother herself, um, uh, speaking with her children about uh, the European Union and European politics and all the history that implies. So it was very personal. It was very pertinent. Now, what we did in, in the studies, we actually checked. We thought, well, we take that agenda and check whether the issues she put forward are in line with the interests and preferences and priorities of the European public. Policy-wise, we see it's a match. Not a perfect one, of course, but she does put forward issues that rank high on people's agenda. Climate change, for example. What we also see in the data, and what we have seen for a long time, is that putting forward personal convictions is prone to resonate with a great number of people. They like to recognize a person and its convictions. But what is actually most important for people right now is the question, okay, we hear what she wants and we see who she is, but can she make it happen? Can she deliver on the expectations she raised? What we see time and again in the data is that people do hold high expectations when it comes to the potential of European politics. At the same time, they have a low level of trust in its capacity to actually make it happen. So I think it is relevant and worthwhile 
looking at the institutional and political environment she faces when considering whether she will be able to deliver on the agenda she has set for herself. So let's look at the European Parliament, the European Council and the European public. Today the European Parliament is more heterogeneous and diverse than ever before. The European Conservatives and Social Democrats have lost the majority and must share power with the Liberals and the Greens. There is a new power balance, or rather an imbalance of power, the consequences of which have yet to be worked out. We already seen more debate, more power struggle. Some say that's a fair price to pay for more visibility and transparency. But what's certain and visible enough for everybody is that dealing with the EP right now is not smooth sailing. Not less significant, roughly 25% of seats went to nationalist and populist forces. That's not enough to make a real mark, plus these people are very fragmented. However, it does add to the general picture. It's a setup that creates a good scenario for less stability, more debate, more controversy and ultimate conflict. Second, there is the European Council to consider. The European Council is a very interesting case because we have seen that it can be very efficient and can act as one if they manage to align their interests. During the Brexit negotiations, for example, who would have thought to see them united like this for over two years? On the other hand, the same people who are able to align their interests and thus being very efficient are deeply, deeply divided when it comes to issues of principle and questions of values. These are lines of conflict that run very deep and will be difficult to resolve. The rule of law is one, minority rights is another one, freedom of press a third. And thirdly, there is the European public. This European public is, as we have shown in numerous European studies, very consistently supportive of European integration in general and belief in its potential. At the same time, that they have high expectations of what European politics could achieve. They have a very low level of trust in its capacity to actually deliver. So, this is basically the institutional and political setup the new commission faces. The EP is polarized, the council is inconsistent, the European public is ambivalent. On top of that, she has raised the stakes and created expectations. Now, this European public, as we have seen before, longs for an operational and cooperative EU. But we all know it has seen its share of dysfunctionality and conflict. And thus we come to our next question. Even if she manages to bring parts of her agenda into political reality, will she be able to convey the message that she gets things done? Something Europeans would like to see, but they have hardly any opportunity to do so. And that's also due to the fact that the European Commission traditionally struggles to reach out to the public. There is an issue with geographical distance, with somewhat contradicting job descriptions, and there is no European media system, just to name a few hurdles. So if you care to know whether Ursula von der Leyen will be able to change that, create more visibility for herself and her team, and thus turn the public image of a somewhat dysfunctional European polity, three factors will be crucial. Her personal style, her managing style, and her capacity to work the intra-institutional relationship. Speaking of her personal style, when we look back at her career as a national politician, we see that she was never shy with the media. She knew how to create visibility for herself. Being forceful and visible, 
attracts controversy, of which she has experienced her share with no effects on her communication style. All the while, she has been handed more and more difficult jobs. The German Ministry of Defense has a solid reputation of a career killer. Many of her predecessors wrecked their spotless reputation in that job. She, however, held it for five and a half years. As a reference point, there is only one German Minister of Defense who did hold this position longer. Drawing from this evidence, we assume there is no reason to believe that she will change as a president of the European Commission. Managing style. In her former jobs, the focus was on managing her portfolio, her performance and her bureaucracy. Now she presides over a large college of European commissioners, people from very different backgrounds with different experiences and competences, speaking different languages, having different worldviews. Delivering the policies, getting the word out, thus changing the reputation of European politics is not a one-woman job. She needs to enable these commissioners to rise up to the occasion and become multipliers for the good of the European Commission. There are second-time commissioners like Margarete Vestager and Franz Timmermans who have already made a name for themselves. Others will be newcomers and will be keen on creating that reputation. The open question is, will she enable them to do the job and get out the message? Thirdly, as we believe most crucially, is her capacity to work the intra-institutional relationship. When it comes to grabbing the spotlight for the European Commission, the highest hurdle is the European Council, or more precisely, the national governments that comprise it. Right now, the national governments have become very accustomed to occupy that sweet spot in which they are able to claim all the successes of European politics for themselves, but pass on the blame for its failures. And even though the awareness is growing that these short-term gains cost dearly in the mid- and long-term, so far, national governments have not been able to resist that instant gratification. It is easy game for them. They are much more powerful in the national frame, get all the visibility, media access, etc. It is really up to them to grant the Commission and common European politics, for that matter, their moment in the spotlight. This was the first eOpinions audio. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about eOpinions and about this report, please visit our website at eOpinions.eu. You can also give us a shout out on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at eOpinions. eOpinions is an initiative of the Batesmann Stiftung. This podcast would have not been possible without the brilliant work of Sabine Kurpius, Oberon Jones, and our EU Opinions team, consisting of Sandra Deppe and Hadi Schechen.